Hello and welcome to Vet Chloe on the Road. Insights from real people making positive change for our planet. I am Chloe, a veterinarian who has an interest in wildlife and all things environmental. And this is a show for people who would like to connect, learn, and prioritize caring for our beautiful green and blue world. Come join me as I travel around Australia in my van, Layla. Let's share all things conservation and meet all the inspiring environmental heroes along the way. And on today's episode, let me give you a brief rundown on some of the amazing things I have experienced and learnt about the natural world as I travelled from Darwin down to now Perth, about 10,000 k's or about 6,000 plus miles, covering this distance in a couple of weeks to then make my now vet locum placement. So I have some notes here and I'll chat through them. I'll also go a bit on the fly, ad lib, and I'll try and make it fun and conversational. I basically just want to give you some of the highlights um, so you feel like you've done this trip as well alongside me. Unfortunately, I did request interviews at the different national parks, but media clearance is a thing. Uh, so it'll just be my, myself reporting and I hope it is still of interest to you. Um, and in a way, it's quite good for doing a quick wrap up. I'll also let you know the kilometers that I've been traveling out of interest. The speed limit in Northern Territory is 130 k's an hour, which is the highest in Australia. But then going into WA, it's 110 k's an hour. So roughly, I'm traveling at about an hour for every 100 k's. So you can also look at my Instagram, VetChloe, for images of all these different places and things that I talk about. So leaving Darwin, I went due south just over 300 k's to the hot springs of Catherine. Oliver and I had already done this, my bro and I, and it's actually one of my favorite places of Australia. Uh, beautiful hot springs. That was just an overnight, and then I traveled over 500 k's to Kununurra, crossed into WA, and Kununurra is where Nav is from. He was one of my previous interviews, so listen to that um, to learn more about his way of life in that area of Australia. So there is quite strict quarantine for crossing the border. Um, he did warn me, but I was so forgetful. So all my veg and fruit and honey and even my little house plant I called Dreamy um, had to be confiscated. Um, and this is all because WA is trying to avoid the Queensland fruit fly crossing over. And from their government website, it says that this is because of it being a potential biological threat and to maintain their export opportunities. There are also signs, which kind of made me chuckle, about how you should check your vehicle to make sure you have no cane toad stowaways. So I'll give you a bit of chit chat on the cane toad because I did see a couple of them in Kakadu National Park and also uh, the national park area outside of Darwin. So the cane toad is the world's largest toad. There are many names for the cane toad, such as the giant toad, marine toad. The updated scientific name is Rinella marina. And back home in Bermuda, we call them road toads. And that's because they get smushed, um, unfortunately, on the road. So they were introduced to Queensland in 1935, and that was to destroy the beetle in the sugarcane crops. And we should have learnt from Hawaii where they introduced them and it failed. Along with Bermuda, we had the same issue of trying to introduce them for the sugarcane crops and it also failing and creating a big problem for us. The cane toad actually featured in my wildlife photography project one summer back in Bermuda when I was 16. 
And I remember trying to catch them on the big grass fields and in the evening trying to set up. I was hanging out in the in the shed, tool shed, to try and um, photograph them eating cockroaches. Um, yeah, that was quite a bit of dedication. <laughs> um, they are pests in Australia. And if you remember my interview with Andrew Eucles, the amazing animal catcher, if we did not catch um, spearfish a fish in that river system, because you can kill and eat pest species, we would have had to catch toads and cook them up instead. Apparently they've got quite good meat on the legs, um, so Andrew tells me. Um, so they are a major environmental pest here in Australia and they reached Kakadu in 1991 and crossed over into Western Australia in 2009. So super recent, just the last decade. So they have traveled over 2000 Ks from their original site where they were released about 74 years ago. And they move at an estimated 40 to 60 Ks per year. Now there is no specific predator or disease that can control them. And they have great reproductive success, mainly because of their feeding. They are unusual among amphibians as they can eat both dead and alive matter. And in Bermuda, it is a local problem as a vet for toad poisoning in patients. And this is an emergency, particularly if people feed their dogs dog food outside and leave the bowls out. Jack Russell Terriers are notorious because of their personality uh, for going after these toads, and they can secrete a poison from the glands on either side of their head. The toxicity is dependent on the dog's weight, and it has different effects. Worst case scenario, small dogs have seizures, and that can be life-threatening. What we do to treat them is actually give an anti-seizure medication and just hopefully wait for the toxin to pass. Just buy some time for the animal. If that's not enough and they're actually actively seizuring, we can't get them out of it, then we have to put them under a general anesthetic, sometimes for a few hours and wait for it to pass. So when you're letting the dog wake up, it can be difficult to tell if they're still having a seizure from the toad poisoning or if it's them coming round after an anesthetic. So sometimes you try and bring them out and they go back into a seizure and you gotta put them back in. So it's um, quite a tricky disease to manage. Some big dogs actually uh, do just fine. They just get a bit wobbly. And some owners actually have reported that their big dogs, German Shepherd dogs, for example, have been known to purposefully go out in the night, find the toads and lick them for the wobbly effects. So a little crazy side note for you. Sadly, many native animals eat this toad, unaware of the poison glands, and they die. Some have learned to avoid eating the gland, such as the Australian crow. And I have a video of the crow, and it's very unique calling, and it flying uh, past one of the gorges in one of my Instagram videos. Go have a look at that if you're interested. And what's really cool is that there is a new conservation tool I'd love to learn more about um, from Professor Rick Shine, who's based in Sydney. And the theory is that you actually release, and they've done it, um, juvenile cane toads ahead of the impending toad front line. Sounds a bit counterintuitive to actually introduce the animal you do not want introduced, but it's very clever because it enables the native animals to have a jump start, a chance to make adaptions, behavioral or physiological, before the more poisonous adult toads move into town. So it's absolutely brilliant and it is working and it's another conservation win for us figuring out a brilliant way around a really tricky issue. So stay tuned, I hope to link up with Professor Rick Shine uh, once I make my way around to the other side of Australia again back in Sydney. So another thing to note in this area of Australia is the boab trees. 
And I really noticed it when I was driving into Kununurra. And it is a Kimberley icon. It is the only place in the world to find this species of boab tree. Uh, most other species of boab trees are in Africa. And here in the Kimberley, they are everywhere. I love them because they show such character and personality. Some are actually 1,500 plus years old. They have a really thick base, sprouting leafless branches now in the dry season from the top. And I would love to see them turn green with apparently large white flowers in the wet season. So again, refer to my Instagram for photos. I would have loved to have done the Kimberley properly, which requires a four-wheel drive. Layla is awesome, but she has a two-wheel drive. So another time, I would love to say flying to Darwin. Darwin is actually one of my favorite places. Um, really cool city. And then you can just do a one-way to Broome through the Gibbs River Road up the Kimberley. So that is on my bucket list, and I hope it is on yours too. So I had to skirt the Kimberley. The Kimberley is actually a big area, the very top area of Western Australia. So if you draw a line from the Broome area, and it is, the Kimberley is 423,000 square kilometers. So 400 plus thousand square kilometers. And this is larger than 75% of the world's countries. And remember, this is just a portion of a state of Australia, which is larger than most entire countries. And the population is 11 people per square kilometer. So you really feel it. You really do. I know that you're on the roads and the main settlements, so obviously there's more people than that per square kilometer there, but you do get a sense of being in an empty, natural space, and it's wonderful. So my biggest drive was driving from Kununurra, 650 k's, to Fitzroy Crossing. And for the Aussies, I passed Wolf Creek, which is basically a horror movie where backpackers go missing. I've never actually allowed myself to watch it because I know that I would just freak. So I went, it was a very big day because I didn't want to stay in Wolf Creek. So I got up early and drove. Um, but this area of Australia and a lot of empty Australia, the night sky is beautiful. So I remember it being a really um, astonishing night sky at Fitzroy Crossing. Bit of a side note is actually one of my favorite things in Australia was I guess 11 years ago, um, plus, in Alice Springs, I did a night sky tour. And again, Oliver was with me. It was in his gap year at the end of my first year of uni. And the stars were incredible. And how I would describe it is it was almost like my whole lifetime of stars being seen in one night. And we actually saw a red and blue shift I could actually see stars that were red or blue. I can't remember which way around, but one, it, you know, the universe expanding or contracting. It was just wild. Um, so perhaps I'll do a night sky kind of uh, interview with someone. That's an interest I have. And so dipping down to Fitzroy Crossing, we're actually then in the Pilbara area. And this is about 500,000 square kilometers, about two UKs, but it only has a population of 66,000 which is roughly the, the population of Bermuda. And this is an even lower density. This is seven people per square kilometer. So Western Australia, you can kind of think of it as the Kimberley up top, then the Pilbara region. Um, and then I'll discuss a few other spots along the way. 400 Ks from Fitzroy Crossing, um, which is 
central, very much inland. I made it to the coast to Broome and beautiful Cable Beach. Wowie, such a gorgeous sunset. Uh, really interesting history Broome has all about the pearl diving industry. And it is incredible what these pearl divers put their bodies against to get pearls with such primitive equipment. Again, just over 600K, another big day of driving. This is me just enjoying it, actually. Layla, good podcast, music, time to think. It was actually a lot of fun, these big day drives. And went to Port Hedland. And whoa, scary, huge mining town. I really didn't know what I was going into, but it is known as the resource hub of Australia. It handles about 100 million tons of iron ore per year. So a cranking industrial area. So it really is quite abrasive after you've been in such empty, pristine, beautiful environment to then see humans in overdrive with just roads and highways and fuming smokestack factory looking buildings. So I just stayed there a night before I then quickly made my way to another national park, about 400 k's south, directly south, heading back inland. I decided not to skirt the coast. I went back inland because I wanted to go to Karangini National Park. And this is known as being the jewel of the Pilbara region. And it's teeming with wildlife. But remember, you have to have the right expectations with Australia. It's not a jungle. And apparently, even in the jungle, animals are very much hidden. Um, And I remember that from my time in uh, the Amazon in Ecuador. You go into the jungle and actually everything's hidden. (laughs) So very much so in the more desert-like environment of Australia. Most animals are nocturnal. Look, it's a huge area. It's very dry and dusty. But out there, there is red kangaroos, rock wallabies, echidnas, dingoes, bats, um, a rare pebble mouse also in the Pilbara area. Sadly, I did not see any of these. But hey, that is to be expected. Um, It's not a zoo. And this is is what they're like in their environment. Um, They obviously... If they were showing themselves to humans, they are probably missing um, a gene for survival. I enjoyed this environment, uh, beautiful gorges and waterfalls. I stayed the night in Dales Gorge and went to Fortisk Falls, if I'm saying it right, Circular Pool and Fern Pool. Fern Pool is actually um, a very sacred pool in the indigenous culture. So these were beautiful places to experience and beautiful walks. It was also lovely to walk after such long drives. So you do see dingo signs around warning you not to feed them as they do like to scavenge. And I would love to come back to Karangini, particularly on a full moon night, because a vet contact I made said that one of her best experiences was actually being out there full moon and hearing howling wild dingoes. So I was really hoping I would experience that, but I didn't. So perhaps another time in life. So the dingo is believed to have arrived in Australia about three and a half thousand years ago. It is the largest native apex land predator. So it has a very important role, important role in the ecosystem and making sure everything is in check. Also, I should mention there is so much bird life out in Oz. You know, I am quite mammal specific because that's what I know most of. Um, I do handle wild birds all the time. Actually, it's the the most common wild animal to come into a veterinary clinic is birds. And I'm learning more and more as I'm in Australia, this is just bird country. And I've developed a real soft spot for the Corella. This is an incredibly playful bird. You'll see a pic on my Instagram. And they're known, even in cities, you know, because they slide down drain pipes just for the fun of it. They're incredibly playful. I saw them 
on a cliff face in pairs and I could zoom in with my camera here in Karen Genie National Park and it was wonderful and it it really makes me happy to see an animal in the wild and to know that its conservation status is secure in particular because then there's no pain that sort of feeling of you know just losing perhaps a species these guys are secure so that's great so just outside of Karangini is Tom Price. This is an iron mining town. And the soil up in Western Australia is very red. It's a beautiful color. And this is because of iron in the soil that makes it red. As you travel through Australia, there's always respectful reference and gratitude to the original people of the land, the indigenous Australians, who've been here for over 60,000 years, the oldest living culture in the world. And Brendan is a new friend I made. He's an Indigenous Australian, actually a chief of his area. I did a tour of his and I saw ancient grinding stones and rock art. And he was part of my last podcast episode I encourage you to listen to. We discussed a whole bunch of stuff, um, his history, issues with native title, preferring the term Indigenous to him, although he says it's okay to use the word Aboriginal, but he prefers Indigenous, um, learning more about the Indigenous way of life and his advice on how he can look after the land better. So tune into that, my last podcast. Um, stayed there a night, and then I was eager to get back to the coast again. Um, bit of a coastal kid, so 550 k's from Tom Price to Coral Bay. This is mid of the Ningalo Reef, and Ningalo is a marine park sanctuary. And I had a beautiful snorkel just wandering off the beach. So it was actually the school holiday, so it was actually wonderful because, you know, it was quite a lot of solitude in the van, which I also enjoy. But it was lovely to sort of pop up in Coral Bay and it was the end of the school holidays, lots of families and young kids all playing and yeah, I really enjoyed the company of them. I then headed up north. I actually did a bit of a dog leg and backtrack up north, 150Ks to Exmouth and that was very much worthwhile. I kind of didn't do too much research. I was, um, and you know, internet's always dropping. Exmouth is where the big prawn is. There are over 150 big things in Australia. These are these just crazy big objects. Um, there's that video of Oliver and I with the big mango in Bowen in Queensland. But here in Exmouth, it is the big prawn. So uh, that was fun. It always feels like a, a checkpoint when you reach these big things. And up in Exmouth is the Cape Range National Park and it boasts the range to reef environment. Lots of bird life at Yardy Creek in particular, which is an area of the national park. I was hoping to see a rock wallaby there, but they are so elusive. I didn't. A cool feature of the rock wallaby is that their reproduction is able to have what's called embryonic diapause. This is where the developing embryo becomes dormant until the conditions are right for it to continue development. So pretty amazing. You know, if a drought comes through, not enough grass, they can just freeze their embryo until better conditions happen and then restart it. And that's another reason why... Um, these guys have a better job of surviving, but they, they are not stable. They are having a tough time. Another interesting piece of info about them is that they do pair for life and it's the females that will actually mate with other males, but they always return to their original mate. So that's kind of interesting. And it seems crazy to have this animal that jumps in such steep, rocky terrain but they are just so skilled at it. Very agile, long tails that they use for steering and balance as they swiftly move effortlessly uh, through the environment. And the black-flanked rock wallaby is a threatened species, mainly due to the predation of introduced species, uh, mainly the fox and at times the feral cat. 
degradation and competition for habitat and food by the feral goats is also a major threat that these wallabies face in the Cape Range National Park. A big highlight of the entire trip was the drift. And this is in Turquoise Bay in Cape Range National Park and it's incredible. It was the best snorkeling I've ever done in my life. And you literally just walk a few feet off this beautiful sandy beach, plonk your face into the water with the uh, snorkel and mask and you see so many fish, different sizes, colors, patterns. I love how fish have all these different facial expressions. They always look a bit perplexed, but many fish, it's our flat fish, these have sandy patterns and they can bury themselves in the sand. I saw a large parrotfish chomping on coral, surgeon fish, butterfly fish, bream, cowfish, triggerfish. Those guys are my favorites, they have amazing patterns. The wrasse, angelfish, a boxfish, and many that I did not know the names of, of, but you just simply drift and enjoy. I did the drift where it actually just carries you five times at low tide and that was spectacular, I really recommend. So a couple of emus that joined up with the third emu and that was amazing to see. So that is some wildlife I did see and they were on the move and they're incredible to watch move. And I've put up a little funny video with um, music to the background on my Instagram if you'd like to see that. So this whole area is called Coral Coast. This is an area from Exmouth that goes down to Cervantes, the town outside of Nambung National Park. And my next trip was heading out of Exmouth about 360k south to Carnarvon. And this is known as the fruit basket of WA. Heaps and heaps and heaps of fruit is harvested in this area. And, you know, sadly you often see wildlife when you're driving because they're either roadkill or gonna be roadkill. And I guess I have a bit of a sad story, which is I was driving, I saw this echidna, I stopped. I knew, knew that there was a road train behind me Obviously, I was trying to stay safe. I had towels, trying to move it, and didn't have enough time. I had to get off the road for my safety, and wham, this just unstoppable rocket just whizzed past, and just, I mean, the echidna would have been killed on the spot for sure, but I saw it in front of my very eyes. It, it just burst open, this vulnerable, innocent creature. So the other thing is you you cannot swerve you know when you see these animals you just have to go straight if you swerve at these speeds um, you will die and you may kill others on the road so you actually do have to prep talk yourself when you get onto these big Australian roads of just go straight and um, hopefully slow down but don't change your direction so 350 k's from Carnarvon down south, I'm heading south here, um, continuing down the coral coast to Monkey Maya. And this is in the Shark Bay area and went to the town of Denham, which is the most westerly settlement in Oz. And apparently Dirt Hartog Island, just off of Shark Bay, was where in 1616 a Dutch trader called Dirk Hartog was the first European to land in Australia, or at least to leave a record behind of it. It can get a bit confusing when you start Googling uh, Discovery of Australia. There's lots of different dates out there. Apparently another Dutchman in 1606 landed in Western Australia. So it really was the Dutch that found Australia in the West, and that's in comparison to Captain James Cook, uh, the Brit who discovered the East, what is now Sydney, in 1770. So in Shark Bay, a succession of seafarers just followed through and it actually became settled later in the mid-1800s. So a big point of interest in this area is Hamelin Pool, which is where 
you have these stromatolites. And this is the Earth's earliest life form. These are microbial gnats, which are three billion, yep, three billion years old. And the Earth is apparently four and a half billion years old. Not sure how they could determine all of this, but it's incredible. Kind of, it's just one of those numbers that you can't even comprehend, but you just know it's huge. And the cyanobacteria in these microbial mats influenced evolution considerably. They were the first organism to release oxygen into the atmosphere, and life as we know it would not be the same without them. They are an incredible organism, and they can withstand hypersaline environments, and sometimes they're submerged, sometimes they're not, huge temperature fluctuations. Most things cannot live in the habitat of Hamelin Pool, but the stromatolites can. So... It's interesting, like the earliest life form, but definitely not the most vulnerable. It the came out hard. It it's so, you know, durable. It's still there, and really, probably the most peaceful experience of the trip was doing the boardwalk and actually being near these stromatolites and just the lapping waves over them. Is actually an amazing feeling in that area. As you travel, yes, you learn stuff, and there's a lot of intellectual facts and figures and cool sights that you see, um, you know, things that are visual or experiential. And then there's also energy, you know, certain places give off different energies. So this one I would say was incredibly peaceful. (laughs) Also, this is the area where we have Shell Beach and this is a beach entirely made of shells. So right up my alley, I was just like, whoa, Um, all made by the Fragum Cockle. So a certain type of cockle. Again, a hyper saline environment. And apparently there are 4,000 alive cockles per one square meter out there in the water. And then once they die, they wash up onto the beach. And they have this symbiotic friendship relationship with zooxanthellae. This is an algae that the cockle provides a home for and the algae photosynthesize, turning sunlight and carbon dioxide into food. So another one of those incredible relationships that nature makes. So monkey my dolphins is also a big highlight of this area. This is an Indo-Pacific bottlenose dolphin that's found in Monkey Maya. And they have been coming close to shore for more than 50 years. It's under strict supervision from the Parks and Wildlife Services. And this is to ensure that the feeding of them ensures that dolphins continue to hunt and behave naturally. There are only five wild dolphins, all adult females, that are in the feeding program, where they can get about 600 grams of a fish snack. Um, That is just a snack because they eat about 11 to 12 kilos of fish per day. Monkey Maya is one of the most important dolphin research sites in the world, where they can research their behavior, ecology, genetics, development, communication, social structure, predators and prey, all to help protect them. So every day of the year between 7.45 in the morning and 12 p.m. they have three feedings and between each feeding they have to set a 10 minute uh, timer. If the dolphins come back in that time then they're allowed to do the next feeding. So it is very regulated. And at 7.40 a.m. five minutes before it started um, one of the dolphins came into the area. So it's quite amazing. Um, Three came up later, um, so there was four in total at one stage. There are 3,000 wild dolphins in the Shark Park area, and as the name suggests, there's also a lot of sharks. Uh, Kia, one of them, had a huge shark bite on her back. All four of the ladies are heavily pregnant. Actually, since I last saw them, they may have popped out a little baby dolphin because they were very ready to pop. So it was Kia, Surprise, Puck, and Piccolo, and they're all ID'd by their dorsal fin, just that chordal, you know, back edge 
it's jagged and that IDs them. Puck is the eldest and she's 42 years old. So that's incredible. That's actually around the max that they reached, but we'll see if she can break any records. And she's said to be a really expert hunter and really incredible to watch. And what I found really fascinating as well about these dolphins is that they have discovered that they do use a tool. So as you know, we think of tool use as being equivalent to signs of intelligence. You know, monkeys use tools, certain birds use tools, and these dolphins use tools. And what they do is they grab this, um, they place this sea sponge on the tip of their nose, and they go foraging in the rocky reefs, and they use it to kind of bang, you know, disturb fish, and then they catch these fish. But they don't want to be brushing up their delicate nose against rough coral and rock and damaging it. So they protect their nose with the sponge and this is how they use it for hunting. It's just brilliant. So that's probably my favorite thing I, thing I learned about the, uh, the dolphins of Monkey Maya. So Shark Bay, although affected by the appearance of settlers, it actually remains largely unspoilt and its natural values are internationally significant. In the waters, they've got humpback whales migrating. It's just the end of their season now, now that we're in October. They've got spotted eagle rays, tiger sharks, loggerhead turtles, squid, sea snakes. Um, on the land, they've got the western barred bandicoot, the banded hair wallaby, the greater stick nest rat, the Shark Bay Mouse. Again, I did not see any of these. They're all in hiding, but it's lovely to know that they are out there. It's an amazing environment to go and experience and to share it with them. And you can feel that they are near. So Ningalo, up by Exmouth, and this Shark Bay area are actually world heritage areas. And what makes a world heritage area is a number of criteria of which Shark Bay satisfies all four. And that is one of only a few that does. So these criteria are, one, they are a natural beauty. Two, they have Earth's evolutionary history there, which is the stromatolites. They have an ongoing ecological process. And in Shark Bay, there is the largest seagrass banks in the world, about 400,000 hectares. And for Bermudians, that's about 80 Bermudas, or it's about a third of the greater Sydney region. So imagine that kind of area just full of uh, seagrass banks. And fourthly, um, biodiverse. So there are many important habitats in the Shark Bay area where threatened species survive. You've got the bilby. This is a very curious creature. I would have loved to have seen a bilby. You do see road signs to watch out for them. And this is a desert dwelling marsupial. They're very small with large ears. And to me, they look like a rat rabbit mole combo. It is known as a rabbit-like marsupial and here in Oz for Easter you will find chocolate Easter bunnies and also, also chocolate Easter bilbies. So buy an Easter bilby if you can as the funds often go to their protection. There are other threatened species in the area and these include a wren and the mallee fowl. Again, you see signs for them. There are nearly 100 reptiles and amphibian species in the Shark Bay area, such as the thorny devil and the bearded dragon, 17 mammal species and about 230 bird species. And there are lots of ecological restoration projects for returning endangered animals back to the park, such as the bilby and the mallee fowl. So 400k south, is Kalbari. This is another national park and this is a beautiful place, rugged terrain, very seclusive and this is where nature's window is. Check out my Instagram, it's this beautiful natural window in the rock and you can see the sunrise through it. Also all the wildflowers are now appearing 
it is October, so getting later in the season for spring and seeing the wildflowers, but goodness, there are so many. Western Oz has apparently half of Australia's 25,000 plant species, and two-thirds of these are found nowhere else in the world. And out of that 25,000 plant species, 12,000 are wildflowers, which again, two-thirds are found nowhere else in the world. So just incredible. So many different shapes, colors, sizes, and it's amazing to see them against the red soil. It really is just a spectacular vision. And I couldn't stop but help, um, as I was driving, stop and take photos. Do not pick them. I've learned that. Um, so don't pick them. <laughs> also, um, just outside of Kalbari, there is Jake's Point. So back to seeing surf and surfers. So that felt like a momentous occasion. Um, actually, surf had started a little bit further north from this area. And it's interesting as you skirt the coast of Australia because there seems to be different thresholds. Unfortunately, the flies had started in this area. But luckily, I was definitely well out of croc zone. So you have places where things stop and start, you know, where mangoes become cheaper, um, where you need to uh, dig out the duna or duvet from the back drawer. Um, I had to do that once I hit Perth, it got, got cold again. You know, where there's no Irukandji jellyfish and it's safe to swim. There seems to be all these different thresholds where, you know, in the next town you can or cannot do things. <laughs> so it's interesting. So surf is now back to happening, which is great. So I went 400 k's further south to Nambung National Park, another national park. So I've been to many, um, Kakadu and NT, and then in WA, I've been to Karangini, Cape Rain, the Shark Bay area, Kalbari, and now Nambung. Really, you need to go to the national parks. It's just the most spectacular places of them all. And this little area is actually called Toikoi's Coast. I think it's always nice to know these sort of general names for the different areas of Australia that I'm traveling in. And this is sort of around the Numbung National Park. And I went there to visit the pinnacles. So these are these spectacular ancient limestone pillars. And it's just an amazing landscape, so unusual. You see them rising from the sands of the desert, some three and a half meters tall. And they were formed by thousands of years of a complex combination of things, um, shell grit, beach sand, decaying vegetation, and rain and wind erosion, uh, nature, uh, being a beautiful sculptor created and I enjoyed sharing my breakfast a bit of my apple with a bobtail skink or shingleback this is the only reptile that forms a long-term monogamous relationship sometimes 20 years so I have um, some videos of a bobtail skink again on my Instagram go have a look and then, you know, I'm just driving along the Indian Ocean Drive. It's actually very um, low. You're, the ocean is right there. So from it being very, very turquoise and glittery and aqua, you know, further north in the Ningalo, it's now down to deep marine, real marine blue. And it was uh, beautiful to kind of hug the Indian Ocean as I traveled a further 170 k's down to Perth. And Perth is the most isolated major city in the world. And this is because the closest city with a population over 100,000 is Adelaide. And that's over 2,000 k's away. So here I am in Perth. And it's significant to me because Fremantle, the coastal town just south, is exactly opposite Bermuda if you were to drop an anchor. Interestingly, Fremantle has the southernmost coral reef and Bermuda has the most northern coral reef. So there is some symmetry there. So if you grab a globe, get Fremantle or Bermuda, look on the opposite side of your finger and boom, there's the other one. So it, there's some sort of uh, nice feeling about that. Home is just beneath me. 
And to ask myself what keeps me inspired, to answer differently to my intro episode, I would say from this recent trip, it inspires me to have actually gone out and seen untouched land, to experience and enjoyed wildlife and nature. Nothing beats it. Get out there. Also, I would say seeing the people visiting no matter the age, ethnicity, gender, or how expensive the vehicle it is that they hop out of, it was inspiring to see unanimously people recognizing and valuing nature's beauty. I think it is ingrained in all of us. So thank you guys for listening, and I hope you enjoyed and learned a few things. I am very grateful for these travels, and also grateful for the opportunity to work here now in Perth for a period of time as I hit pause on the travels for a couple of months for vet work. This 15th episode concludes first season of that Chloe on the road but do not worry I'll be back I've had a blast so keep an eye on my Instagram vet Chloe for when this will be there is more of WA to explore and I have many more interviews ideas ahead as always check out the show notes just simply scroll up in the podcast app or on my website vetchloe.com and if you like this show I'll be most grateful if you could tell a friend subscribe or rate and review on iTunes it all helps till next season my friends stay kind and I'll see you at the next stop